Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to see all of you here for prayer meeting on October 22, 2008. And if you do the math, we're 164 years past 1844. And if you think about it, if you had asked any of the Millerites that day if earth would have continued 164 years longer, there's no way that any one of them would have believed that earth could have gone on that much longer. And yet here we are, 164 years after October 22, 1844. So why is that? What is the significance for that? And what exactly happened on October 22? So what we're going to look at tonight, and I couldn't help myself from using this evening to talk about October 22. It's October 22, so why not? And we, as Seventh-day Adventists, we should talk about October 22 a lot more than we do, actually, because that's the foundation of our faith. And from that foundation... It gives us an understanding for the type of experience we should be having today. And so we are going to talk about October 22, 1844. We're going to talk about some early Adventist history. And we're going to talk about the work that God has for us now. And um, at the end of our time together, we'll have a little bit of time for prayer. Um, and we'll have some specific things to pray for. So starting off, <clears throat> October 22, 1844, what's the big deal? What is October 22, 1844? And I would dare say, based on the Bible, that since the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, October 22... 1844 is the greatest day in earth's history since the death of Christ. And the next great event will be the second coming. So we are living 164 years past the greatest event in heaven and earth between the cross and the second coming. And to understand that, Let's recall that in early writings, page 54 and 55, Ellen White tells us that Jesus indeed moved from the holy place to the most holy place. The Father moved first, and then the Son followed him with a chariot of tens of thousands of angels. And so um, for Adventists who have lost faith in anything happening on the literal day, October 22, our divinely inspired prophet tells us that Jesus actually did switch apartments on that day. Amen. And what's the significance of that? Well, you can't talk about October 22, 1844, without reading Daniel 8:14. And I realize that probably most of us here already know this, but you know what? It's October 22, so why don't well, let's have an October 22 experience today. So that's what we're going to do. Um, Daniel 
this is the verse that is the foundation of the second Advent movement. You read Daniel 8, 14, it says, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Of course we know that this is talking about the sanctuary in heaven. We know that the 2,300 days begin with the rebuilding and restoring of Jerusalem in 457 B.C. And it terminated on October 22, 1844. And if you look at Daniel 8 verses 15, 16, and 17, we see that Daniel does not understand the vision. And so Gabriel is sent by God to help him understand. And in verse 17, in the last part of Daniel 8, we are told, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. And we understand, based on Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, the time of the end is when the king of the north was pushed at by the king of the south. That correlates with the deadly wound. So 1798, that's when the 2300-day prophecy would be relevant. So sometime after 1798, some, sometime from 1798 and on, would be the time of the vision. And we see in verse 26 of Daniel 8 that the vision is shut up. We see in Daniel chapter 12 that only the wise shall understand. So the Bible was predicting or prophesying that there would be wise people after 1798 who would understand the vision of Daniel 8.14. So not only was something going to happen in heaven, but something had to happen here on this earth, not just in heaven. And in order to prepare the way for the most significant event in the history of heaven and earth since the cross, God needed to prepare a people to give a message that would draw attention to the most significant event that's happened since the cross. And we all know that William Miller was the man chosen by God to give this message. Now, why did God choose William Miller. William Miller at one point was a captain in the army, fought in a battle in New York, and lived to tell the story. But he was a deist and basically believed that God created the world, set it in motion, and let it alone after that. So how would God choose someone with a background like that, a humble farmer, to become a man used of God to prepare the world for October 22, 1844. Well, one of my favorite stories about William Miller is actually before he even began preaching the second Advent message. It's the, it was during a time when he went to the local Baptist church to please his mother. And since he was the best speaker in the congregation, probably, they had him read the sermons. And one particular Sunday morning, he was reading the sermon about Jesus dying, and specifically in the context of Isaiah 53. And William Miller became so overcome 
with the emotion of what Jesus had done for him that he had to sit down. He was weeping too much. And by then the rest of the church was too. It was a true conversion experience for a man who was questioning if if God really even interacted in the lives of his people. So, and we need more experiences like that in, in the world today. We need more people with true, genuine, heartfelt conversions where they go from sort of just having a Laodicea and lukewarm experience to being totally on fire for God and totally awake to a message of the soon coming of Jesus. Of course, what touched William Miller was the death of Jesus on the cross, his sacrifice. And from that moment, he be- Jesus became to him his dearest friend. And he started studying the Bible. And so here's some illustrations, some crucial points of learning for us. And I've said this before in certain settings. We may think, well, you know, William Miller was William Miller and he knew the Bible backwards and forwards, but I sure don't. Well, William Miller, when he was converted in 1816, spent the next two years studying the Bible constantly. And his free time was used in the study of the Bible because Jesus was his dearest friend, so he wanted to spend time with his dearest friend, not with the TV all evening and the latest shows and the World Series or whatever. He wasn't consumed with those kind of concerns. He was consumed with studying the Bible and figuring out what everything in the Bible meant until he could figure it out. And it wasn't 1840 or 1842 or 43 that William Miller discovered the concept of the end of the 2300 days. It was 1818. In 1818, through the study of the Bible, William Miller figured out that the 2300 days would conclude around 1843. And he continued to study that and hone that and sharpen that for the next 13 years until the year 1831 when he received this overwhelming conviction to go tell the world what he had learned. And of course... William Miller did not feel qualified, which is exactly what made him qualified. Um, You know, I always get um, concerned when um, people start promoting themselves as, hey, I can preach for you, you know, I can do this and that. And it seems more that they are, and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone in this room, but just I've seen this happen where people seem to be impressed with their own abilities rather than wondering, has God called me to do what what I'm promoting myself to be doing? So William Miller, he did not feel qualified to go out and give this message. But God called him to do. And of course, we know the story. William Miller bargained with God and said, hey, if you give me an invitation, I'll do it. And within 30 minutes, his nephew arrived and he was already on the way and invited him to come preach about the second coming. And of course, we know the rest of the story there. William Miller started preaching. The message started catching like fire. And the word was, wherever William Miller shows up, the church gets revived. 
And it was not only just a message of the second coming, it was a message that caused people to repent and to turn to God and to turn away from their sins. And again, we need more kind of preaching, that kind of preaching in all of our churches. Um, Messages that call us to repentance. And that's what William Miller did. And he didn't have any formal training, but he received the power of the Holy Spirit to give that kind of a message. And it was in 1839 that he finally got called to Boston. Joshua Himes was the pastor of the Chardon Street Chapel. Heard the message. He was blown away by it. He could not believe that within four years Jesus was coming back to this earth. And he pulled William Miller aside after the sermon and said, do you really believe that what you're preaching is true, that Jesus is coming in four years? And William Miller said, absolutely. This is what I've been doing the last eight years. And Joshua Himes said, well, how come you're not doing more to get this out to the world? And William Miller said, I'm doing everything that I can. And Joshua Himes, from that point on, picked up in a way that William Miller was not able to do. Joshua Himes was the organizational mind. He knew how to strategize and to get the message out there. He got the Midnight Cry paper, the Second Advent Herald paper, the Signs of the Times paper going. Just a a very um, sharp mind. And he got these papers into the big cities, New York, Boston, Philadelphia. And so at that point, the message started taking off. And there's a number of other things. There's some fulfillment of prophecy. We won't go into that, August 11, 1840. I'll pass over that. You can study that on your own. But from that point on, the movement took off. And from 1840 to 1844 is when the first angel's message was really preached with power. Revelation 14, 6 and 7 started to get strong emphasis. Fear God, give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. So now you start to see the fulfillment of the first angel's message. And then in the summer of 1844, after the early disappointment, we won't go through all of that, um, as the mainline churches kicked the Millerites out of their churches, Charles Fitch was the first to preach that Babylon has fallen. And so the second angel's message begins to be preached. So you have the first angel's message, fear God, give glory to him, the hour of his judgment has come. That started to take off in 1840. Second angel's message starts to take off in the summer of 1844 with the message that Babylon has fallen, not just Rome, but her daughters. And that is what set the stage for my favorite story in the Millerite movement, the Samuel Snow story. And... I know I've told this before from up front, but I'll tell it again because it's October 22, so we'll talk about it. Um, the Millerite movement had reached the tarrying time where they had kind of lost their steam. It was the summer of 1844, and William Miller had predicted that by March 21 of 1844, Jesus would have come. Well, we're in... July and August, and Jesus hasn't come, and so there's some confusion. Nobody really knows what's going on. 
other than that, they're sure of the prophecies, but something just isn't quite clicking. And so there was a camp meeting held August 12 to 17, 1844 in Exeter, New Hampshire. It's easy for me to remember the dates for this camp meeting because August 12 is my anniversary. So I got married on the anniversary of the camp meeting that started a powerful movement. And actually two months ago, Joelle and I were in New England and we saw the camp meeting site in Exeter, New Hampshire. That was very fascinating, right on the riverbed. It's a very beautiful location, the approximate site. And so what happened, a lot of Millerite Adventists showed up from around New England and people came from Canada all over New England and a lot of people were there. It was a bigger than usual Millerite camp meeting, 3,000 people or so, which was bigger than average. And Joseph Bates had this conviction as he came to the camp meeting that they would receive new light. He didn't know what it was, but he had a conviction that there would be new light. And he ended up being part of the story. Um, he was preaching, and it was not very inspiring. And people were not enjoying the message too much. It was the same old stuff, and it didn't really do much because they knew every, they already knew all of that, and what they knew had brought them to a standstill. So they were really not getting into the message, and Samuel Snow comes in by horseback, comes up to the front row, or after he ties up his horse, he comes to the front row and sits next to his sister who's sitting on the front row and says, hey, I have new light for the camp meeting. And his sister stands up and says, Brother Bates, we have men with new light here, please sit down. And people said, amen. <laughs> and some stories say that Samuel Snow got up right then. Others say that they waited till the next morning. So I'm not sure who is true. I like the, the story that he gets up right away. I don't know if that's true. But either way, um, Samuel Snow then got up there and gave the biblical exposition for setting the date for October 22. And this was one of the key points of the Millerite movement. Everything that they taught was solidly biblical. It wasn't just human opinion and I think, well, what about this and what about that philosophy? It was straight from the Bible, clearly reasoned arguments. And the way the, the argument went is very clear. The spring, festival, the spring festivals in the types and the anatypes in the Jewish service were met exactly by Christ. He, as the Passover lamb, died at the ninth hour, according to scripture, which is the exact time that the Passover lamb would be slain on Passover Friday. Type met antitype at the very hour, not just even the day, but the very hour of that day. And that's the argument he used. And then he was resurrected as the offering of first fruits, as the wave sheaf offering. And Pentecost happened on um, the very day it was supposed to happen, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So type met anatype on the very day in the spring festivals. And the fall festival, Day of Atonement. And uh, Daniel 8.14 is pointing to the antitypical fulfillment. And so it would only seem to reason 
that the 2,300 day prophecy would not only be fulfilled relatively at the right time period, but it would be fulfilled on the very day. And he had already shown that the 2,300 days had to have begun in the fall of 457 BC based on when Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. But then he showed that according to the Karaite Jewish calendar, the 10th day of the 7th month was October 22 of that year. Now remember, he's giving this message on probably August 13 or 14. So you're looking at two months and 10 days roughly, till, or less than two months and 10 days, till October 22. And his message was so convincing and so convicting, the people who were in the room said that this overwhelming solemnity swept over the congregation. And they all were convicted that October 22 was the day that Jesus was going to come. What's interesting was up until that moment in the camp meeting, there was some fanatics there. They were doing all sorts of weird things and stirring up excitement and commotion. But when Samuel Snow came in and preached this message, it created silence and conviction. And people were so convicted they asked him to give the message again he did the next day and it was even yeah so he gave the message again the next day and when people left that camp meeting the words on everyone's lips were behold the bridegroom cometh go ye out to meet him they saw the fulfillment of the parable of the bridegroom of Matthew 25. They saw themselves as the wise virgins, the wise who understood the 2300-day prophecy. They were the exact fulfillment. In fact, Ellen White says, the parable has been and will be fulfilled at the very letter. Has been being the Millerite movement, will be the, the loud cry movement at the end. So what happened between August 12 to 17 and October 22? Some Adventist historians describe that time as a tornado that swept across the country. And Ellen White describes that time as the happiest moments of her life. And in fact, I'll read the famous quote from Great Controversy, page 401, where she says, Of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection in the wiles of Satan than was that of the autumn of 1844. Even now, after the lapse of many years, all who shared in that movement and who have stood firm upon the platform of truth still feel the holy influence of that blessed work and bear witness that it was of God. So that's a strong divine endorsement. None have been more free of human imperfection than was that two-month period in the Second Advent Movement. And that was a period of time where the Millerites, they made their wrongs right with their neighbors. They confessed their sins. They paid off their debts. And it's interesting, um, if you read the, um, the accounts, some people sold everything that they had, but others didn't, although they put time into the work. So that after October 22, there were people who still had their houses. They still had um, land, but... F.D. Nickel in this book, The Midnight Cry, 
suggests that one of the main things that happened during that time was that people didn't harvest their crops, and so there was a shortage of food. But that was one of the. But otherwise, people retained their houses. Now, as we come to October 22. 1844, we come to the actual day. And actually, William Miller and Joshua Himes, who were the leaders of the movement, they were the last ones to kind of catch on. They were not sure about this whole setting the date and, and all of that. But what convinced them that it was true was they saw the fulfillment of the parable of the bridegroom, which they had been preaching. And they saw the Samuel Snow message and the effect afterward as the midnight cry portion of the parable of the mid midnight cry where it says that midnight there was a cry made behold the bridegroom cometh so they saw the fulfillment they accepted within a few weeks of october 22 but we come to october 22 1844 164 years ago today it was a tuesday that week we missed it by one day this year it's wednesday today and it was a, a beautiful day in New England, a clear day. It was a good day for the second coming in their minds as they woke up. Clear day, clear blue sky. And most of them gathered in homes, some gathered in churches. There was no such gathering of people in ascension robes on ascension rock. That's a fairy tale that never happened. Um, William Miller made an interesting comment to his family. I heard this from James Nix. He's our current Adventist historian and William Miller told his family you know if Jesus doesn't come today don't be surprised because the Bible clearly says no man knows the day or the hour so William Miller told that to his family the day of October 22 and so he was a, he was perhaps a little bit realistic that hey you know the Bible does say no man knows the day or the hour and here we are calling the day and of course we know that as the day wore on you can read about it in some of the books that I have um, up here on the table uh, every time like the sun hit a cloud and the sky got a little brighter people would look at the sky a little bit more earnestly and yet eventually the sun went down and eventually the clock came to midnight and Jesus hadn't come now, uh, try to, and I haven't even come close to capturing the emotions of the people during that two-month period. Here's, imagine yourself, you hear the clearest exposition line by line from Scripture that clearly identifies October 22 as the fulfillment of the 2300 days. And by the way, it was correct. It was right on the money. It was undeniable. And you believe that the fulfillment of the 2300 days means that your dearest, most precious friend is going to come in the clouds of heaven and take you from this miserable earth that we live on. These people, they weren't just caught, caught up in a false excitement. Of, some of them were, but the true believers, the wise virgins of the parable. Jesus was their dearest and best friend. And when they heard a message in August of 1844 that put the second coming two months away, 
that was the best news that they could have ever dreamed of. Because their Savior, who died for them, who did everything for them, who paid the price, and who was preparing a way for them to come and be with him forever, was going to come personally in the clouds and take them home in two months. They were going to be with their dearest friend. And as the time went on between August and October 22, the earnest conviction and the longing and the desire to be with Jesus became stronger and more powerful and more poignant. And so by the time you get to October 22, imagine waking up saying, I'm going to see Jesus today. This is the day. 100%, I know. Because I've seen God work, the scriptures are clear, and there's no way that we're wrong. Jesus is coming today. And to come to October 22, expecting to see Jesus, whom you love with all your heart, and for midnight to come. Notice how that experience is described. And again, these are familiar quotes. This is Hiram Hudson one of our great pioneers. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawned. Now, I've never met anyone in my life maybe just because of my limited experience, but I've never met anyone in my life that cried straight all night long. And, um, you know, I've been close to people. My father has passed away. I've been close to others who have lost people in very tragic circumstances. But I've never heard of someone weeping from midnight till the dawn of day without falling asleep. You'd think maybe they would have gotten tired and fallen asleep, but it was such a crushing blow. They wept till the day dawn. And James White says, true believers had given up all for Christ and had shared his presence as never before. The love of Jesus filled every soul and with inexpressible desires they prayed, come Lord Jesus and come quickly. But he did not come. And then notice this. When Elder Joshua V. Himes visited Portland, Maine a few days after the passing of the time and stated that the brethren should prepare for another cold winter, my feelings were almost uncontrollable. I left the place of meeting and wept like a child. These people, they really loved Jesus. And they were really expecting to see him. And I can assure you that if... I came into today knowing 100% for sure that Jesus was coming and he didn't come, that it would be the greatest disappointment possible. And seeing the experience and the reaction of the early pioneers is a reminder to us, how much do we love Jesus? Is he our dearest friend? Would we be excited if we knew Jesus was coming in two months? Or would we get scared and say, uh-oh, um, 
there's things that I'm still doing that I kind of like a little bit better than spending time with Jesus. And it'd be nice if he'd put it off for another year so I could enjoy that a little longer. That's human nature, by the way. And the Millerites had the right spirit. They loved Jesus with all their hearts. And they didn't care about this present world. They didn't care who was going to win the presidential election. In fact, they made such a huge impact on the United States that they were sharing front page coverage in the newspapers with the presidential election of 1840. So Adventists have a little catching up to do today. Um, Obama and McCain are a little bit prominent compared to Seventh-day Adventists right now. So that was October 22, 1844. Unfortunately, the movement lost steam after October 22. There was no recovery of the movement after the way there was after the early disappointment. And um, all that was left were the, as best as we can tell, between 50 to 100 people who retained the faith. Among them included James and Ellen White, Hiram Edson, Joseph Bates, and a few others, who moved on from that point to accept the Seventh-day Sabbath and the sanctuary message, the heavenly sanctuary message. Hiram Edson, of course, had the October 23 road to Emmaus experience where he and some Millerites were in a barn and they prayed until they felt that the Spirit had accepted their intercession. So they prayed and prayed and prayed until they knew that God had heard their prayer. You know, I wonder what would have happened to Hiram Edson if he had prayed a short two-minute prayer. Would God have revealed to him when he was walking through the cornfield that, hey, everything's okay. I just entered into the most holy place yesterday. I wasn't going to come out. And Hiram Edson, because of his that prayer, I believe, was given that extra insight. And you know, William Miller, and I don't have the quote with me from early writings, but Ellen White tells us that William Miller made the same mistake that Moses made just before entering in the promised land. That if William Miller had accepted the, the Sabbath, which was tied to the third angel's message, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, if William Miller had accepted the Sabbath message and the third angel that God would have restored his health. He would have been revived. He would have preached the third angel's message with power and Jesus would have come shortly after. Shortly after 1844. And here we are 164 years later. And of, But yeah, Ellen White says the angels guard the precious dust of his grave. So it's meaningful to go by his house and his grave in New York. I want to read... <coughs> what F.D. Nichols said in the book Midnight Cries, page 286, describing how William Miller died. Um, says, his hope and confident belief to the last were that some minor error in chronology, particularly as touching the key prophecy of 2300 days, with its interlocking prophecy of 70 weeks, explained the disappointment. He died in the very literal expectation of the immediate coming of Christ. Death came to him on December 20, 1849, in the 68th year of his life. This was five years after 1844. At his bedside stood the man who in Chardon Street Chapel 
in December 1839, this is Joshua Himes, had made a solemn compact with him to promote and publish his views to all America and beyond. It was fitting, fitting that Himes should be there at Lowhampton to say a last word to the old warrior who first served his country in the War of 1812 and later his God in a far more arduous war. Miller lies buried in a little graveyard about half a mile from his old home. At the top of the tombstone are the appropriate words of Holy Writ. At the, at the time appointed, the end shall be. That's Daniel 8:19. Below his name are carved the equally fitting words of inspiration. But go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. You know, even though William Miller didn't accept the Sabbath message at the end of his life, um, there's a lot that we can learn from him and from the early Advent experience. Because we are told that the Millerite movement was a literal fulfillment of the parable of the bridegroom and that the second Advent movement at the end of time will also be a fulfillment of that parable. And I want to read a couple of quotes. This is from Testimonies, Volume 5, page 252. Here Ellen White says, The power which stirred the people so mightily in the 1844 movement will again be revealed. You know, that's good news to me. The power of the 1844 movement will again be revealed. We won't be moving along in a Laodicean stupor, hardly knowing why we are Seventh-day Adventists. There will come a time when there will be a group of people who will know their identity just the way the Millerites did. And she closes by saying, the third angel's message will not go, the third angel's message will go forth not in whispered tones, but with a loud voice. And then early writings, page 278. I saw that this message will close with power and strength, far exceeding the midnight cry. So the power that attended the Millerite movement, especially the seventh month movement, the midnight cry, what will happen at the end of time is going to far exceed what happened then. But let me tell you this. The reason why the 1844 movement had so much power is because the people of that day, they gave everything to God. They loved Jesus with all their hearts. They studied their Bibles. They knew what they believed. And their biblical arguments were impenetrable. And again, they gave everything to God. They put all on the line. And if we expect to be part of a movement at the end of time that will fulfill Revelation 18.1 where the earth is lightened with God's glory, we're not going to be part of that movement if we are anything less than what the Millerites were of 1844. If we're trying to be 80% committed Seventh-day Adventists and 20% fellowship with the world, that's not, Miller, that's not Millerite Adventism. That's not the spirit of the Millerites. And that's not the spirit of God's end-time people that is prophesied 
in Revelation 18 or Revelation 14. God will have a people who will give the three angels messages with power and with conviction, not in whispered tones. We won't be ashamed of our message. We won't be trying to be fitting in to all the other evangelical churches, which at this point are part of the fallen churches of Babylon. Now that's not popular, but remember, these are messages of mercy to the world that call God's people out of all the other churches into the message that prepares them to go through the time of trouble and the seven last plagues and to be living when Jesus comes. And you know, it almost doesn't seem fair to me that William Miller was denied the opportunity of seeing Jesus come in the clouds because his life of faithfulness is a rebuke to almost every Seventh-day Adventist in our church today. And to me, he should have lived to see Jesus come. He should have had that opportunity. And the other thing that amazes me is God raised up a prophet amongst us, Ellen White. And even with a living prophet in the midst of the early Adventist church, he couldn't get his people to finish it. And here we are, 164 years after October 22. How much longer is it going to take before God has a group of people that are serious about being Seventh-day Adventists? How much longer is he going to have to wait for us to put everything on the line for the Lord? To be as faithful to the three angels' messages as William Miller was to the light that he had. And I'm encouraged by the awakening that does seem to be taking place in some parts of our church. But let's face it, we still have a long way to go. Um, there's still a lot of I mean, even here at Advent Hope, we, we have a long way to go. Um, we can pride ourselves that we hear Bible-based messages that talk about the second coming, but what happens when we walk out of the doors? Do we go home and go back to watching TV and being caught up in the cares of this life, or are we spending that extra time with God and praying earnestly that he will prepare us for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. And so that's my burden for myself and for all of us. I, it was never God's will, never God's will to have 164 years pass after October 22, 1844. And yet here we are. And every October 22, while it should remind us of in a good way of the power of the pioneers, it should also remind us that, hey, it just might be, or it probably is something in our own lives that is contributing to a delay. And we should be earnestly coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, please cleanse my heart. Is there anything in my life that is preventing the sanctuary in heaven from being cleansed, from preventing that final work of mediation, of cleansing from being finished? And so that's my burden, that's my challenge. And at this time, I, I realize it's eight o'clock, but if we could just break up into groups of two or three and pray for just a few minutes 
And what I would suggest that we pray for is that we would pray for the spirit of the pioneers in our own experience, that we would pray that we would study the way they did, that we would, um, that we would give everything to the Lord the way the pioneers, the way the Millerites did back in 1844, so that Jesus can pour out his Holy Spirit upon us so that we can see the great days, of the greatest days of Bible prophecy that have yet to be fulfilled happen in our lifetime. I want to live to see Jesus come. I want to see him come in the clouds. I don't want to hear about it from my great-granddaughter. I want to see it myself. So let's, let's all bow our heads, and we are going to have a closing prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your presence with us this evening as we took a step back in time and recalled how you worked with such great power in the early Advent movement. And yet we are thankful for the promise that this movement will close with even greater power. Forgive us, Lord, for how we have fallen short of your glory and have perhaps contributed to the delay, but we pray that you would come into our hearts and that we would have the mystery of God, Christ, in us completed so that Revelation 18.1 will be fulfilled very soon. Thank you again for all you've done. I pray for each one in this room that we would be faithful to you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.